Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's Scripture Reflections. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. Each week, veteran Vatican reporter Gerard O'Connell and I take you behind the headlines for an intergenerational conversation about the biggest stories out of the Vatican. This week, we're talking about the first big revision of the Vatican's penal law since 1983. We'll get into what's changed and why. I'm Colleen Deli. This is Inside the Vatican. Good morning from New Orleans, Jerry. Good afternoon from a rainy thunderstorm room, Colleen. Oh, no. Uh, I came here by taxi, and the taxi driver says, we have the summer in the morning and the winter in the afternoon. Man, we got summer all day here. It is hot. Yeah, it's it's humid here. These days have been great because a lot of the lockdown has been lifted. We have now the curfew starting at midnight. People can go to restaurants also indoors, four or six at a table at most. From next week, we will be in the white zone, which means that practically all the restrictions are lifted. The main thing is that we, unlike the United States, we still, the government still insists that we wear masks and keep social distance. And this will be the rule, I think, for some time to come. Right. Pope Francis, meantime, has widened the Catholic Church's definition of sexual abuse, revising its penal code to acknowledge and criminalise sexual exploitation of adults. The new rules... Can you remind our viewers why the Church's canon law matters so much? Well, this is, as you put it, it's in-house legal system. It's the laws that determine the functioning of people who work at the Vatican. Uh, That means... Jerry, you've also been really hard at work during this week. And so let's jump right into our first story. We're going to talk about the big changes to book six of canon law. And I made a mistake on the show last week. I said book four. I'm sorry, I mixed up the V and the I and the Roman numeral. But there were big changes to canon law for the first time since the 80s this week. So we're going to talk about the big ones in the areas of sexual abuse, of women's ordination, and of financial mismanagement. So before we get into our discussion of the changes to canon law, let's just give a quick primer on what canon law is. We're talking this week about what happens when you break the law. So what are these laws? And more importantly, like who writes them, who enforces them, and and who is covered under them? Well, throughout the history of the church, there have been laws. They were codified into the Code of Canon Law in the, in the, 19, the beginning 17. of the 1917, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you had a big revision again in 1983. Mm-hmm. That's a long period of history. Right. In Rome, you have a, a Vatican office, which is for the interpretation of the code and for the refining of the code, etc. And the, every diocese, most dioceses have canon lawyers. So th- this law comes 
from looking at what's happening in society, what's happening in the church, it's the result of quite a lot of consultation and input over many years. So it's taken a long time to to put together this revision. And there's sort of two-thirds of these canons in this book six have been revised or amended, and there are new ones come in. So what's the purpose of it? And who's bound by it? Everybody in the church. Every Catholic? Every Catholic, yes, because it gives you certain rights. You're a baptized person, you have certain rights. It also protects you. And so the law is there to guarantee order, to protect people. Also, for those who've done wrong, it's meant to help them to recover. Because remember, Pope Francis often says, and he speaks about not just the death penalty, but the life imprisonment. He's called many times for the abolition, he said, because it must leave an opening for the recovery of the person, for the recuperation, for the uh, that the person can redeem themselves in some ways. And if you remove that hope, you destroy. And so this law has a variety of these penalties. These are prudential judgments. They will be criticized by some some people like a lynch mob for a crime, and they they just want the person executed if possible. Uh, But that's not how the church sees it. So, Jerry, you were talking about the judges. Who are the judges? Like, how, how does this court system work? It varies because the bishop can be in a judge in a case. But then there's also like a, a tribunal in every diocese, right? There's also a tribunal in every diocese. And then the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has the judicial power in certain cases. So it varies according to the, the issue of the crime. In, in recent years, in terms of the abuse of children, for example, the bishop in the diocese can take action. He has to inform Rome. Uh, Rome can also take action. The person convicted can appeal to Rome. And there's an appeals court as well. So there is a gradation in terms of who can do what. A bishop can suspend a priest, for example. Right. So when we're talking about this this legal system, I guess my other question is, you know, who enforces it? Who's in charge of, you know, giving these sentences and, and making sure they happen? A bishop can make some decisions. He can set up a court in his diocese. Sometimes it comes to Rome. So it, it depends on the, on the question. And th- there is a, a clear delineation of who is responsible for doing what in, in the Code of Canon Law. So, Jerry, maybe you could put this in context for me. Like, how big are these changes on the scale of all of Canon Law? Well, they're quite significant because we're talking about the last revision was made almost 40 years ago. And uh, if you think of what has happened in these last 40 years in terms of the church with the increasing knowledge and understanding of the various dimensions of the sexual abuse, the abuse of power, the abuse of conscience, when you look at the enormous misuse of church funds, this kind of thing, th- these are big issues. We've come to understand that, uh, you know, to keep order in the church, and that's a fundamental requisite in any society. To keep order, you need laws. And laws, to be effective, there have to be penalties. Right. And that's I understand that was one of the big changes in this, is that it, it really strengthened the the penalties for these crimes, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And we'll also talk about you know Pope Francis's overall view of the place of canon law as He kind of is reframing it as an act of charity. We'll get into that later, but let's talk specifically about each of these areas of sexual abuse, of women's ordination, and financial mismanagement. (music) 
A report from the Vatican found two popes either ignored, overlooked, or downplayed allegations when it came to taking tough action against Theodore McCarrick over two decades. The Pope addressing the unrelenting shadow of scandal and international outrage, speaking of the Vatican's pain and shame, but some calling it too little, too late. ABC's David As a child, have haunted 55-year-old Mark Crawford for three decades. It doesn't go away. It never goes away. It's always there. Crawford's Obviously, one of the big challenges the church has faced since 1983 is the sexual abuse crisis. It's been a major scandal, and one of the big critiques was that canon law, the church law, was not equipped to deal with this crisis. It's been kind of changed here and there since then. But this major revision kind of strengthens all of the laws, deals with our, our changing understanding of these crimes, and puts them all in one place. So Jerry, let's talk about what's new here. I think the big changes are that the law now includes not just rape, but it's really, it includes indecent exposure, pornography, and also grooming. It understands the psychological elements of you know, kind of preparing someone to be abused, I guess, as as violations of human dignity, whereas it used to be just that these were violations of the Sixth Commandment, right? Adultery. Let's talk together about what's changed in the church's understanding of these crimes. Well, I think for our listeners, Colin, it is good to remember that it was at the beginning of the year 2002 that the sexual abuse scandal in the United States, for example, exploded in Boston and throughout the country. In the 20 years since then, the whole church has come to a new understanding of what was actually happening. In these years, we've seen it in Australia, in Ireland, in Germany, in the UK, in Canada, right across the globe, we've seen the cases. And what has come out is, first of all, there was a growing understanding that it's not we're not just dealing with sin. We're dealing with crimes, crimes. And it took a long time for bishops to use this word crime in relation to the abuse of minors or vulnerable adults or to the abuse of women. It took a long time. And it took a long time also for them to understand that it wasn't just sexual abuse. There was abuse of power and abuse of conscience. So this has now got incorporated into the law with penalties responding to these various elements of the crime. Yeah, Jerry, I remember in 2019, we were in Rome together covering the abuse summit and those specific categories of people who needed to be covered as as possible perpetrators or as people who needed to face penalties for their role in this. Those were big topics of discussion. And one of the big things that this new revision of the canon law volume gives us is that it permanently institutes the law that came out of that abuse summit that quickly followed it up called Vos Estes Lux Mundi. This was the law that required bishops to report abuse to church authorities. So that law has been on the books, but now in this revision of the penal code, there's a law criminalizing the failure to report to church authorities. Yes. First of all, the whole purpose of the law is bring to justice those who've committed a crime. But also the purpose of the law is to prevent and protect for the future. So it's got a past element, but it's also got a, a deterrent that, you know, if you go down that track, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, Pope Francis, with that document, Vos Exis Estis Lux Monde, You Are the Light of the World, he underlined very specifically the responsibility of bishops and heads of religious orders and heads of various movements, etc., said negligence 
is a criminal act. And what do you mean by negligence? Just failure to report? If you either choose to ignore what is happening, if you fail to report or denounce, if you fail to take action, if as the person with responsibility, you just sit and present like the three monkeys, you see no evil, hear no evil, say no evil. Uh, this is not acceptable. And so what we've got here with these new laws is the emphasis on a culture of responsibility at all levels. And also lay people who see something happening, you see a priest or a religious or another lay person actually abusing a young person, a minor, a vulnerable person, women especially, but also men, they have a duty now under this new law to report it. What the law has tried to do and what this new book six of the Code of Canon Law is doing with the penalties is to reduce as far as possible the loopholes, to ensure justice for those who have been victims, to ensure proper exercise of authority by those who are in authority and hold penalties for failure to exercise authority properly. And also to guarantee to the wider public, to the people of God, the people in the church and outside the church, that they will know that such criminal acts are not acceptable and they will be punished. And there are different levels of punishment. It can lead to the not just removal of office for the job you're doing, but if you're a priest or a bishop, it can lead to your removal from the ministry, removal from the clerical state. Now, Jerry, I want to ask you a bigger question about penalties here, because I know that this was one of the big changes that this revision brought about, which is that, you know, often in the past, canon law kind of left it open to the bishop's discretion about, you know, what, if any, penalties they wanted to give. This one, I understand, puts in place some benchmarks of punishments for for each crime. To what degree is it still left up to the bishop? Can they still decide to do nothing? Look, Colleen, in any judicial system, the judge has a certain amount of discretion. The church judicial system is no different. But is there like an equivalent of a minimum sentence now? The minimum sentence is that you cannot ignore. You have to take some action. Responsibility can be diminished if one is in a is in a drunken state. Yeah, there was also a diminishment of of responsibility if for quote the heat of passion, and I thought that that sounded really suspicious. You know, given that these are are sex crimes in part. I think, in often in court cases, you see that the you know the crime of passion uh, is also a factor, a factor. But I, I was surprised, for example, they don't mention drugs which one might have expected. But uh, on the other hand, they speak about pornography. And and that's a new dimension. They speak about uh, the use and abuse of basically the social media in some ways. It's caught up with what is happening in society. And it's, I think, raised the consciousness of bishops. And those who will now be trained in seminaries, those who will be trained in these review courses, whatever they call retooling courses for bishops and uh, new bishops and such, they will also be briefed on this. I, I think what we've seen is a step forward towards protection of the vulnerable and the minors and also justice for the victims. What do they say? Uh, Jersey girls don't pump gas. 
but they can celebrate Mass. These women are about to defy the Catholic Church. All right, the second big area that we're going to talk about is women's ordination. We know that, you know, since 1983, since the last edition of the Code of Canon Law was published, uh, there have been some groups that have very publicly tried to ordain women. And we know that, you know, John Paul II had already placed a ban on women's ordination. The new code includes a law that Pope Benedict made that, you know, both the person attempting to ordain a woman and the woman who's seeking ordination are automatically excommunicated. And that means that they have to appeal to a church magistrate to have the excommunication lifted. I'm curious about whether this is a change or just an incorporation of that law that Pope Benedict had created. I think it's the codification, it's the putting in the code of what was already law under Benedict, because he introduced it in the motu proprio, right? As Francis does, when you're not actually going in to change the code immediately, you have a law introduced. Got it. Remember, since 1983, so many of the other Christian churches have ordained women as priests and bishops. So you have a lot of women bishops in other Christian churches. There's also movement within the Catholic Church to push this. But of course, it's the community cannot ordain anybody. It has to be bishop. Here, they're saying that even if a bishop wants to, he cannot do so. Since this Code of Canon Law in 1983 was approved, you had, especially under Pope Benedict, but started under Pope John Paul II, you had the integration into the Catholic Church of married Anglican clergy. And uh, you had the same in the United States. Right. And they were allowed to remain married when they were brought into the churches as Catholic priests. They were allowed to, and, and they're practicing. And I had a, in a parish in London where cousins of mine were living. They had one married Anglican priest and everybody was happy. But the same can't happen with women priests. The women priest is, is not on the agenda right now. One interesting thing here is that there's an interesting wording that, that one of our colleagues asked about, which is that the code says that there are punishments for a person who attempts to confer a, quote, sacred order on a woman. And sacred orders can include the diaconate, as far as I understand, which is interesting, as Cindy Wooden from Catholic News Service pointed out at this press conference at the Vatican. She said, you know, the Vatican is currently studying the women's diaconate as a real possibility. So with this law in the penal code saying, you know, you can be punished for attempting to confer a sacred order on a woman, how does that gel? Bishop Arietta, who's the secretary of the Pontifical Council for Legislative Texts, he said, if we come to a different theological conclusion, we'll modify the norm. So it's kind of interesting to see this, this flexibility that they have to change the law and that they're willing to respond to those changes if they come. Well, this is case in, I think, that uh, one time you have uh, an issue that is criminalized and later on it is not seen in the same light. Right. It feels that it's healthy to point that out when we're talking about the church, though, because, you know, I think so many people are very invested in a vision of a church that never changes. But as we talk about constantly on this show, that's not the case. The church does change and, and quite often. I think Father Maciel used money the way some politicians do in spreading it liberally to buy support. Uh, Bichu was the Secretariat of State's number two. 
During his time there, the office invested in a luxury building in London's Chelsea neighborhood. Controversially, a huge chunk of the Secretariat's asset portfolio. Now, one thing that the Vatican has had to deal with in recent years is uh, some massive financial scandals, right? We've seen cases of embezzlement and misappropriation of funds and money laundering, right? And there were there were hidden funds involved as well. And, you know, there was really just one canon existing that kind of tried to cover all of this. And the church has found that that wasn't sufficient. Remember that starting with Benedict as Pope, but also especially under Francis, a whole legal framework has been introduced to ensure that the finances of the church are used in an honest manner. And so throughout history, Colleen, there has been problems of how you use money in the church, how you use property, who decides what, whether people scream things off for their own benefit or not. You have seen people give money gifts to try and influence decisions in terms of nominations, in terms of positions in the church. It's a very wide area. Under Francis, there's a lot of legislation has is now in place. Here, the Code of Canon Law is uh, got some very strong statements, but again, pointing to responsibility, commission of crime, punishment for the crime, negligence for oversight, etc. Then there are grading also penalties. Some of them can be either you have to pay back. Some, you can be removed from position of authority or uh, responsibility. Uh, some, you can be dismissed. We saw in, for example, the McCarrick case and the Massiel case, how much money has traveled. And we don't know still, but it has been the source of major problems and major corruption. Francis keeps saying, you know, the devil comes through your wallet and through your pocket. But remember, this is not a modern problem. This is a problem that's run with the history of the church. You go back to the Acts of the Apostles and you get this couple who sold property and they kept back a piece pretending that they'd given the whole lot to the apostles. Peter, who said, uh, you know, you, you, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And the man died. And then while they were carrying out his his body, the, the, the wife came in and she too was given short shrift. So it's it's been the history of the church. And so it it is quite appropriate especially in the light of the financial scandals we've seen also in the Vatican in the last 30, 40 years. It is high time that there are clear penalties envisaged in, in the law. Right. Now, the last time we talked about a new uh, financial law, we talked about how it could go into effect in time to uh, affect the trials that are expected to happen in the Vatican's financial scandals. These changes to canon law don't go into effect until December 8th. And that's because there were so many changes, they need to give the canon lawyers time to prepare, to, to study up on, on these changes and, and incorporate them. But, but laws are usually, when they're passed, they're, they're not retroactive. Mm -hmm. No, not retroactive, uh, but just they do often go into effect immediately. Yes, some laws go into effect immediately. We mentioned, for example, that when Francis removed the privileges of bishops and cardinals from being tried by a civil tribunal in the Vatican as distinct from an ecclesiastical tribunal, this went into effect immediately and will have an impact in, in the trial that we expect to be open very soon. And here you will see many of the issues that are touched by these new canons on public visibility. Definitely. 
So Jerry, we don't have much time left, but I do want to ask you one thing about Francis's larger vision here, right? The part about sanctions, right? The punishment for breaking laws. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, Pope Francis's kind of vision of them as as a form of charity and, and as being sort of a form of charity that's aimed at establishing justice. He doesn't want laws to be seen as something that are that are unmerciful or unpastoral. We have this quote from Pope Francis about this. He says, charity and mercy require a father to commit himself also to straightening what at times becomes crooked. So could you talk to me a little bit about Pope Francis's vision of, of the role of canon law? Yes. Uh, Francis, from the beginning, uh, understood, and, and in his eight years as Pope, he's understood even more clearly how negligent some of the pastors have been, what ways church people have acted in criminal patterns. He's trying to introduce a legal framework that protects people, that protect people from being harmed, that ensure that justice is done to people, that also protect the good name of the church, because if the good name of the church is, is, is tarnished, then uh, people won't believe in the gospel. Can you tell me about like the role of mercy in here? I feel that you know mercy and justice are often framed as being opposed, but Francis sees them integrated here. He sees that by also bringing a person to justice, you are doing a merciful act, first of all, to those who have suffered, but also you are helping the person to move on to a different path. And for this reason, there are gradations in the penalties. Francis, as I said earlier, he does not want to remove the possibility of a person being converted, remove the possibility of a person redeeming himself or herself, re remove hope from people. I, I think that this is fundamental. And so this is where the justice goes with mercy. All right, Jerry, thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me through these changes. And we will obviously be, be keeping up with them and how they end up playing out uh, in various cases here on Inside the Vatican. So I'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Colleen. And I hope our listeners understand that we are not experts in law. We're not <laughs> canon lawyers. We're people struggling to understand That's right. what is some, what's a very important chapter in the reform of the church. And before we go, we have a few brief headlines for you. First off, Canada was rocked by the discovery of the remains of 215 children who died in Canada's largest residential school, the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. For context, more than 150,000 Indigenous children were taken from their families and sent to these schools between 1874 and 1996 as part of Canada's forced assimilation of Native Americans. The Catholic Church operated about 70% of the schools. Pope Francis spoke about the news this weekend, expressing his sadness and urging the church to distance itself from what he calls a colonizer model and also from the colonizing ideologies of today. According to Jerry's reporting, some of Canada's bishops had asked Pope Francis to travel to Canada back in 2017 to apologize to Indigenous leaders for the church's wrongdoing. The Pope was willing to make the trip, but Jerry reports that it didn't happen because there wasn't consensus among the bishops on this. And for our last story, Cardinal Reinhard Marx, the Bishop of Munich and Freising and a top advisor to Pope Francis, submitted his resignation to the Pope last week, saying he was taking responsibility for sexual abuse. 
Now this is interesting because there aren't any accusations against Cardinal Marx. He says, With my resignation, I would like to make clear that I am willing to personally bear responsibilities not only for any mistakes I have made, but for the church as an institution, which I have helped to shape and mold over the past decades. Now, as with any resignation, Pope Francis would have to actually accept this, which he often delays in doing, even for bishops who are past the retirement age of 75. And if this were accepted, it would only mean that Cardinal Marx would give up his responsibility as Bishop of Munich, so he would remain an advisor to the Pope and keep any other positions he holds. Still, this resignation raises some interesting questions for other bishops. We've already heard some saying that Marx shouldn't resign because he should try to fix the system from the inside. Others say that it sets a precedent for every German bishop to submit their resignations, like happened in Chile after Pope Francis spoke with those bishops about sexual abuse. The Chilean bishops resigned en masse and left it up to the Pope to decide who would stay and who would go. Jerry will have an analysis on Cardinal Marx's resignation up later this week at americamagazine.org, and we're going to talk about it on the show next week. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This week's episode was produced by Maggie Van Dorn. Production assistance from Stefano Maiero at the Jesuit Curia in Rome. Inside the Vatican is mixed by Kevin Christopher Robles. You can find in-depth and up-to-date Vatican coverage at americamagazine.org and follow us on Twitter at I-N-S-D-E Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also email us your comments and questions at insidethevatican at americamedia.org. And if you want to support Inside the Vatican, the best way to do that is by subscribing to America Magazine. You can do that at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thanks. For America Media with Gerard O'Connell, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Deli. We'll see you next time. Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture? If so, you're in luck, because every day there's a new scripture reflection from the thoughtful staff at America Media, thinking through big questions together, like, what do Catholics believe about guardian angels? And what can Gen Zers take away from the Gospels? If you're already a subscriber, you can access these reflections in your email inbox or on our website. If you'd like to become a digital subscriber, it's easy to do. Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.